great. It is an amazing thing that God has done. Well, creation itself is an amazing thing. If he, if he had done nothing more than just create, that in itself would be quite amazing. But then to think that He came to this world, robed Himself in flesh, laid down His life for us. That goes beyond amazing. He is such an awesome God. He's such an awesome God. He really is. He really is. He's done so many things that even to this day, the most learned and educated cannot really explain. I heard someone talking just the other day, Brother Hilton, I'm sure you would have enjoyed this speech, but, and you may have heard this before, this man said he was talking to, I guess he was debating an evolutionist that claimed that the worlds were created through the Big Bang. Of course, he began to question Know this bang that came about, the the dirt, the particles that collided, where did they come from? Well, we don't know, he said. We don't know. He said, So you think I'm crazy for saying in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and you don't know you say that I don't know where God came from. But yet you believe that the dirt created the heaven and the earth and you don't know where the dirt came from. I'd rather believe in a God. But then he went on to, to say, he said, he asked him if, if his institution had a, um, one of those old-fashioned merry-go-rounds. And the man said, no. He said, well, you might increase your level of education if you just install one. He said, you let two or three kids get on that, bring out your best football players and let them start spinning it around. He said, these kids are going to go through certain phases. He said, first they're going to start out screaming faster, faster. But then it reaches a point where they're screaming then he said the next phase is they're holding on for dear life and not saying anything. But he said if it keeps going faster, if there were a way to really speed this thing up, get it really, really spinning, these kids are going to fly off of there. But he said, let me ask you, if the merry-go-round is going clockwise and the kids fly off, what direction are they going? Answers clockwise. That's just the laws of gravity and the laws of nature. 
they're going to spin in the same direction in which they were thrown off. So he said, explain to me if the world was created in this big bang and all of these things just spun out into the universe, please explain to me why a number of the moons are spinning opposite the direction of everything else. Can you tell me why? Well, there is no answer for that if everything just happened on its own. And this man said, you know, the only answer I can give you as a creationist is God did it just to mess with everybody else's minds. And to make your theory really look stupid. <laughs> but this is the great God that we serve. He can do these things that defy explanation. And really go beyond understanding. His ways are past finding out. I love him this morning, don't you? He's so good. He's so good. Praise God. God bless you. We're going to get into the word of the Lord this morning. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to start with verse number 6. First Corinthians chapter 3, and beginning with verse number 6. And, and I would just remind you that several weeks ago I made a... Um, blunder. Um, I taught the first part of a lesson and then the following week came back and started a brand new lesson without finishing the one before it. And realized what I'd done the third week and so I went back and picked up from the first one. And so today I'm coming and picking up with the second one that I started. So we'll get them all done. But anyhow, it's just kind of a we're playing a little yo-yo here, I guess, to get all of this accomplished the way that it needs to. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. The apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he says to them, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. That's, that, that simply means 
you are God's product. You are God's garden. Um, and you are God's building. You're God's building. We've been talking about that on Tuesday nights. You're God's building. I, off the subject, but just, it is interesting to me that in the beginning, in the beginning, where did God first meet with man? In the garden. And then, what was the next place God met with man? In the tabernacle. He started in a garden, he went to a, a building. And the Apostle Paul comes along and says to the church, you are God's garden. You are God's building. You are the place where God meets with man. God desires a relationship with you. And He desires to be in you. Praise God. So today we are picking up with part two of our lesson entitled Laborers Together. Laborers together. Would you put your Bibles down, lift your hands, lift your voices. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us today. I want Him to help us with this lesson today. Let's talk to the Lord together, everybody. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, we are so thankful, Lord, that we have this wonderful opportunity to break the bread of life today. God, I ask you, Master, that you would do a work in this place. Lord, let the will of the Holy Ghost be accomplished. Let the Word of God have free course. I can't do this without you, God. So I ask you to grant me an anointing today. God, I'll give you the glory and the honor for it all. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Can we just praise Him one more time before we're seated, everybody? Let's give God some praise. Let's give God some praise. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Let me do some review because it has been a few weeks uh, since we started this lesson. And so I think it is essential that I take a little bit of time. And do some review in our Bible class this morning. Um, we started, those of you that remember, um, we began by talking about how we find ourselves in an age today in which it seems that people are more interested in recording an act of violence than they are in getting involved and trying to stop it. And you can find multiple instances of this. It doesn't take a whole lot of searching to find. Um, people will pull out their cell phone and, 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 and video someone being violently attacked. Rather than try to get involved or try to help the victim, 
they're just more interested in getting it on tape. Or whatever, that kind of dates me, doesn't it, to call it tape. It's hardly tape anymore. But, but you understand what I'm saying. Um, I even shared with you a story that I'd read um, how that there was a very violent attack that took place in a particular city and, and there were a number of eyewitnesses but many of them simply pulled the shades down so they wouldn't see it happen rather than again try to get involved and the question was asked which is the greater enemy? The attacker or the multitude of people who simply pull the shades down and refuse to get involved? And the point of that is that if we're not careful, apathy may become a greater enemy for the church than the devil is. We can actually reach a place where we simply don't care what's going on. I don't know that I shared this story with you. I don't think I did. I think I've shared it with our minister's class. But, but it stuck with me. A number of years ago, the, the college that I attended, uh, a man came to preach. And he was preaching about reaching the lost. And he told of driving down the road with a preacher friend of his. And he said he, he looked at the masses of people in this large metropolitan area. And, and he said he was just so torn and he began to, tears began to run down his face and he turned to his friend and he said, look at all of these people who are lost. And he said his friend looked back at him and said, so? The man ended his message with that and turned around and went back to his seat and knelt down and began to pray. It took a few moments for it to settle in on the crowd. It's quite a strange way to end a message, but he had made his point. Because if that doesn't affect you, then you are just as apathetical as his friend. I'm going to tell you that if the church cares enough to get involved, we have the power, we have the authority, we have the spiritual tools to be able to change our world. We can make a lasting impact on this world if only we care enough to do it. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, and I, I said it in that lesson, but the fact of the matter is apathy is far more dangerous to the church than the devil could ever be. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have power over the devil. We can rebuke the devil. We have authority over the devil. 
We can resist the devil. But if apathy ever gets a hold of us, then all of the rebuking and all of the resisting is going to be absolutely worthless. If apathy gets a hold of us, we will get nothing accomplished. Does any Christian dare yawn and ignore the horror of coming doom? Someone wisely said many years ago that all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And can I say to you, that's why we find our country in the state it's in right now. Because for too long we've done absolutely nothing. We don't get involved. We don't want to get involved. In fact, I told a story to our, our minister's class um, that I, I, I shared it with them and that really... Uh, it was in the opening of the class, and that's, that ended up taking the rest of that class. We didn't go any further than that. But it was a true story from uh, the time of the Holocaust. And, and I, I told of how this, this actually happened. They would load the Jews by the hundreds into trains and transport them to Auschwitz or or Dachau, or whatever uh, camp they were sending them to. But one of these particular trains on its way to one of the concentration camps, the train track ran right by a church. And, and this, this truly happened. But as that train would pass that church, the Jews in those cars would scream for help. And the people in the church could hear them scream. But they knew what it was going to cost them to try to intervene or to step in and do something. And so this is a fact. What they learned to do was as they would hear the train starting to get closer, the congregation learned to just sing louder. And they would sing louder and louder until they were able to drown out the screams for help so they would not hear them and their conscience would not be affected by the cries of the people on their way to their deaths. I wonder how many of us have learned to sing louder. While this world is crying out because it is lost and dying and going to a devil's hell. Listen to me. The things that we see that we're so upset about. The things that we can't stand. The things that we complain about. Do you understand that all of it is simply a cry for help? It's a world that doesn't know how else to deal with the situations it faces. But we know. Unfortunately, the church meets service after service, and we never hear their cries. We just sing louder. We just drown it out. 
Because we don't want to be involved. We don't want to pay that price. We've got bills to pay. We've got situations we've got to deal with. We've got a life to live. We've got positions. We've got jobs. If we get too involved, it may cost us something. May God deliver the church from the spirit of apathy. I'm going to tell you that, and I know this is a very judgmental sounding statement. But we really cannot lay claim to the title of Christian if we are plagued with indifference. Because Christian means to be Christ-like. It means to be a follower of Christ. It means to be doing our best to imitate Him. And please tell me at what point in Christ's life was He ever indifferent? Was there ever a time that He looked at the needs of others? And said, I just can't get involved right now. You know, there was even a woman that came to him who was a Gentile. It wasn't her time to be helped. And the disciples tried to send her away. Now Jesus made a very strong statement to her. When he said to her, it's not right to take the children's meat and give it to dogs. But I'm going to tell you that even then Jesus could not just pull himself away and not get involved. There was a man who came to Jesus and admitted that he had doubt. But Jesus still got involved to be a Christian to be truly Christ like we have to learn to give ourselves for others children of God it's not just about us I know, I know at 63 years old that I am becoming more and more of a dinosaur. I am, I am becoming outdated, outmoded, old-fashioned. I know that. I understand that. But I'm going to tell you. One of the worst things to ever come in to Christianity as a whole is this selfish attitude of feeling like Christianity ought to be convenient 
for us. And not cost us anything. Jesus said, if you would be my disciple, you're going to have to take up your cross. Please tell me what's convenient about a cross. Tell me what's comfortable about a cross. What's enjoyable about a cross? And yet people only want a Christianity that is comfortable, convenient, enjoyable. Don't ask me to make a sacrifice. Don't ask me to give up a few hours on a Saturday to go knock doors. Don't ask me to skip a meal. I'm I'm digging deep today and I know it and I know this is not going to help me win friends and influence people but after 50 years of preaching surely I can say a few things and get by with it. I'm going to tell you that if the work of God is going to succeed, we're going to have to shake ourselves and say, whatever it costs, we will get involved. We will do something to move His kingdom forward. We're going to get involved in the lives of others. We're going to help others. We are going to give to others. We are going... To sacrifice for others. We're going to do something. Even when it costs. Listen to me. Listen to me. Saints of God. Why do we think that God suddenly in in the 21st century. Totally changed his nature and his character. Some people think maybe he changed it in the 20th century. At least you go through and read, read the writings of Christians pre-20th century. And see how it compares with the last part of the last century and what we've experienced so far in this century. I challenge you to do it. It's two different worlds. It's like they're writing from two different planets. And I'm not talking about one particular group or one particular denomination. I'm saying across the board. Go back and read the ancient commentaries and see how much they told people, you got to quit sinning. You, You can't live that way and get by. But not so today. Now we live in an age in which God is so tolerant. And so forgiving. And so loving. That you can do anything you want to do. And he'll just accept you. If you'll just accept him. Then he'll accept you. And all is well. You can't be lost now if you tried. 
That's the message of modern day Christianity. But it's not the message of the Bible. And unfortunately, that, that whole idea of once saved, always saved, is what has put the church in the condition it's in today. Because if I'm going to be saved anyhow, why should I pay a price? I started saying it's amazing how they think God's changed His nature. I, I want to tell you, go all the way back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning and see what God was like. And he said, I am the Lord, I change not. He didn't say, now I'm going to change when the New Testament gets here. He said, I don't change, period. So Cain comes along and tries to offer his own kind of sacrifice that's pleasing to him. And God says, nope, won't accept it, that's sin. Cain commits murder. God says, nope, won't accept. In fact, back up before Cain with Adam and Eve. They, they ate one fruit and God cut them off. Now, God's nature hasn't changed. What has changed is the blood of Calvary. And now the blood of Calvary covers our sins. But it doesn't cover our sin if we just keep on sinning. We talked about that in the last few weeks. We went through all of that. I, in fact, I closed out last week talking about how much God wants to save you. He wants you to be saved. He wants to forgive you. God doesn't want to hold these things over your head. God doesn't want you just giving up and quitting. Go back and listen to last week's lesson. I dealt with all of that. I'm just trying to draw a balance here today to show you, no, God doesn't want to just cut you off. But no, God doesn't want you to just keep living in sin. If we sin, we have an advocate. But that verse starts with, I write to you that you sin not. That's the difference between the Bible way of, of, of living as a Christian and today's Christianity. The goal is don't sin. But if you do, there's an advocate. Please notice that's if you do. Not, oh well, you're going to. You need to be striving not to. Church, sometimes because we don't, you know, we talked about the big sins. Was that Tuesday night or was that Sunday morning? We're talking about the big sins. The big sins usually are the ones you're not doing, right? Those are the big ones. The ones you do are just the little ones. But, 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 but if you don't do them, then that, those are the big ones. But uh, I think most people say the big ones probably are like the Ten Commandments, right? You know, you, you, don't, you don't kill, you don't steal, you don't. Commit adultery, those are, man, those are the big ones, right? And, and so a lot of people think, well, as long as I don't do that, I'm okay, I'm okay. But we've got to understand there's so much more to being a Christian than just avoiding the big ten. There's so much more to being Christ-like. And really, sin is not just in that list of the big ten. 
The word sin means to miss the mark. That's what it means. The Greek word that is translated sin, hamartia. That is, that is, that is missing the mark. And so, what is the mark for a Christian? To be like Jesus. To take on His nature. To be made in His image. That's the goal. That's the mark. And so when we refuse to care, when we refuse to get involved, when we refuse to do our part, wouldn't you say that's missing the mark? My point is this, God wants us involved in His kingdom. God didn't save anybody to just be a pew decoration. Some people don't even do that. But a lot of people feel like as long as they're doing that, then that's all that God really expects. But God doesn't want you to just decorate the pew. God doesn't want you to just sit there, show up on Sunday... Put a few dollars in the offering. God's looking for so much more than that. He wants you to be involved. And if the work of God is going to succeed, we all need to get involved. This work is far too big for just a handful of people to accomplish. Now, let's, let's talk about it here for a little while this morning. Um, all of that's my review. The review's done. I spent more time in review than I wanted to, but that's kind of normal for me. So, um, why should we get involved? What's the real reason for getting involved? Well, let's, let's talk about something for a few minutes that I think often gets um, conflated in our minds I think sometimes we don't really understand the real meaning of this word. I want to talk to you about worship. Because so many of us think that worship is simply showing up on Sunday, maybe saying praise the Lord, clapping our hands if the music's fast, lifting our hands once in a while, that's worship. That's really not worship. That's praise. But there is a difference between worship and praise. Now praise should spring from our worship. But there's more to it than that. Let's go to John chapter 4 verse 24. Jesus makes a statement here. Now surely we can accept the words of Jesus himself. Jesus says this. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. All right, now hang on just a minute. There is a, a word here, and as I like to say, words mean things. There's a word here that I don't want us to just gloss over. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him... Isn't that interesting? This is an absolute requirement, not a suggestion. You ever noticed that before? 
He didn't say it'd be really nice if you'd worship God in spirit and truth. He didn't say you really should worship God in spirit. He didn't say you ought to worship God in spirit and truth. He said if you're going to worship God, you must. This is an obligation. This is a requirement. The only kind of worship that God accepts is worship that is done in spirit and in truth. In fact, this is not printed out for you, but get your Bible there, Brother Larson. And, and uh, let's, let, let's read John 4 and 24 and verse 25. John 4, 24 and then verse 25 as well. John 4 verse 24 says, God is a spirit, or in the original, God is spirit. God is a spirit, uh-huh. and they, they that, that worship, worship him, him must worship, must him, worship him in spirit, in spirit and in truth. And, and then he truth. says, verse 25, the woman saith unto him. Okay, I'm sorry. Back up to verse 23. That's what I was looking for. I'm but sorry. the hour this is where it gets dangerous. Yeah, that's where it gets dangerous when I start trying to do this without it being in my notes. Verse 23 is what I'm looking for. I'm sorry. So verse 23 says what? But the hour cometh. The hour cometh. And now and is. And now is. When the true worshipers. When the true worshipers. Shall now, worship. Now, now hang on. If there are true worshipers, if, if Jesus is going to use the adjective true, he does this so he can point out the fact that there are worshipers who are not true worshipers. If he's going to use this term true to describe a kind of worshiper, then that suggests for us, that implies to us that there are false worshipers. But true worshipers, we can know them this way. They worship the Father how? In spirit. In spirit and and in in truth. truth. Read. For For the Father father seeks such to worship worship him. God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's true worship. If it does not involve spirit and truth, it is not true worship. God doesn't accept just any kind of worship. Again, I point you back to Cain from the very beginning. God has never accepted just any kind of worship. God accepts true worship. True worship requires two elements, spirit and truth. True worship is much more than simply uttering words of praise in a church service. Or even repeating a few words in a prayer closet. True worship involves work. Oh, I just said a dangerous word in Christian circles. That's... That's a bad word. 
you're a legalist. You want people to do works. Well, I'm going to tell you. Um, James made it clear in writing to the church that faith without works is dead. He's writing to the church when he says that. James preached works. Not that works save us. But works are required of those that are saved. You understand the difference? We're not saved through our works. But if we claim to be saved, there need to be some works to accompany that salvation. Listen to what John 9 and 31 says. This is an interesting verse of Scripture. John 9 and 31 now we know that God we know heareth, that God not, heareth sinners, not sinners. But if any man be but a, if any man be a worshiper, be a worshiper of, God of God and doeth and his will doeth his will. Him he heareth. Him he heareth. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? If you're a worshiper of God and you do his will. I don't think of this word and as meaning that he's laying out two different things here. This word and chi in the original has a lot of meanings. And one of those is more closely associated with the word even. If any man be a worshiper of God, even doing his will. This is not trying to line out two different things. But it's describing for us that real worship means we're going to do what God wants us to do. That's real worship. Again, go back, go back. Let's go back 4,000 years. To a man called Abraham, the father of the faithful. Does anybody remember what it was Abraham said when, when he had Isaac, his son, and he had found the mountain of which God told him to go and offer sacrifice, and, and he had his servants there with him, and, and, and Abraham's getting ready to leave the servants behind and go do something He's going up on the mountain to offer Isaac. Does anybody remember what he said to those servants? Abraham says to them, this is in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham uh, says... Um, This is Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. Genesis 22, verse 5. Read for me. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I... And I and the lad... I and the lad will, will go, yonder go yonder and worship and, and come again. Wait, wait, wait. I and the lad will go yonder and... Isn't that interesting? Now, Abraham's not going up there to play a fast song and do a dance. He's not going up there to clap his hands and jump up and down and run the aisles. He's going up there to offer his son. 
Why? Because that's what God told him to do. He's going to do the will of God. And what did Abraham call that? We are going to worship. Well, hallelujah. You can trace this throughout the scripture. That real worship involves service. That's real worship. You know, um, you ever hear somebody say, let's say about a man perhaps, you know, he just, he worships his wife. Now, you know, when, when, when that term is used, I, I think all of us understand the analogy that's being made. That, that obviously, it's an exaggeration. Nobody thinks that that man gets on his knees and bows down. But what they do understand when you make that statement is he gets up out of bed every morning. He goes to work regardless of how he feels so that he can provide for her, so that he can furnish her with a home, so he can pay the bills, so he can do his best to give her the best that he possibly can. Now, yes, it's going to involve some words of compliment. There will be verbal expressions along with it. But just because he says nice things, that doesn't cause you to say, well, he worships his wife. When you use that kind of terminology, what you mean is he's doing everything he can to serve her and to honor her. Right? So if we worship God, why do we think that that just means we say some really nice things to him when we come to church? Real worship is not even what goes on here in the church. But real worship is what we do every day. In fact, you know, there for a while it was a, it was a common statement in some churches. They'd put it... Uh, I, I've seen it over the doors. They'd, they'd cut out the letters and put it over the door of the sanctuary so that as you're getting ready to go home, you'd see this written over the door and sounded really good. It said, enter to worship, leave to serve. Well, that sounds really good. But there's a problem with that. Because we don't come in here when we go out to serve, that's when we're really worshiping. We're showing God how committed we are to Him by the service that we offer Him. We come in here to praise Him. We come in here to learn more about Him so that we can more effectively serve Him. We come in here for Him to kind of work on the rough edges of our life. Let His Word mold us and shape us and wash us. In fact, the Apostle Paul said we are washed in water by the Word. Do you know what this kind of teaching does or what it's supposed to do? It's supposed to be washing you. It's not something for you to get your hackles up and get mad at the preacher. Well, 
This is, this is, I, I can say these things as an old man. I, I, can, I can make these statements as an old man. I can, I can say it and get by with it. As, as I've said to you many times, I've waited 63 years to become a grumpy old man, so get out of my way. Here it comes. We've got to understand, church, that true worship is so much more than what happens around here on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night. And, and, and we've got to understand that when the Word of God is going forth, it is to help us to worship more effectively. Don't get mad at the preacher for delivering the Word. You know, I, I don't know, I, I didn't have any sisters. There were three boys in my household. I've got an older brother and a younger brother. And I know, you know, there was a point in our life, as disgusting as this now sounds, there was a point in our life where we had to be made to go get a bath. I, I think it was a guy thing. You know, and then we'd go and we'd get out and mom would say, now, now how did you do that? And your hair's not even wet and you'd go back and wash your ear. Look at how dirty your fingers are. What? Right? You know, that's the way church is for some people. They come in and the word of God's trying. It's there. It's available. But they walk out just the same as they walked in. And you know, as young boys, we get aggravated at mom. We felt like we were plenty clean enough. I know I'm not the only one. In fact, we had a word for boys that always stayed just spotless and clean. We can't say that kind of thing anymore because it's not woke. It's not politically correct. But in our day, they were sissies. It was just a part of what we did as boys. And we resented mama trying to make us go and clean ourselves up more than what we were. And if we're not careful, we can get that same attitude when we come into the house of God. So the preacher preaches and, and it kind of rubs against us and it's scrubbing us pretty hard. And we get upset about it. We'd much rather the preacher just come in and make us feel good. And that's kind of what parents are doing today. Oh, you sweet little darling. And that's why you can walk in the store and watch them slap their mama. Hear them cuss their daddy. See them kick their grandparents. You know why? Because you don't want to upset them. You wouldn't want to create a problem with their psyche. 
you know, and, and that's why everybody gets a trophy today. We've got to reward everybody, regardless if they put in an effort or not. And we are absolutely destroying society in the process. It's a fact. Like it or not, it's a fact. Well, hallelujah. And that's why you want to find a church that's going to make you feel so good about yourself. Go somewhere where you're always being uplifted no matter how bad you've been. No matter what you've done wrong. Don't cross me, preacher. Because there's another church just a few blocks from here. But they'll take me in. They'll be happy to just pat me on the back. I understand. I understand. But I'm going to tell you something. I've got this deep, deep desire in my heart. I'm a long way from it. But there's something in me that I want to be more like Jesus. And I know I'm not going to be more like him if people only tell me what I want to hear. If they only tell me what makes me happy. If they overlook my faults. They overlook my failures. They overlook my mistakes. They never correct me. I'm never going to be any more like him than I ever was. I don't want somebody to make me feel good about sinning. If I'm doing wrong, I want somebody to tell me I'm doing wrong. I want to correct it because I really do want to please Him. You know, the college students that I'm, I'm teaching... On Monday nights, we just went through some of the characteristics of God. We were, you're in that class. We, 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 were, we were discussing how that God is omnipotent. He has all power. And yet there are some things that God cannot do. Sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. One of the things that God cannot do is He cannot lie. The Bible says it's impossible. Now think about this. It's impossible for God to lie. But there are people who believe that on judgment day, we're going to walk up before God having lived miserable, sinful lives. Doing our own thing. Being selfish. Not caring for the lost. And we're going to walk up before God after living these very sinful lives And he's going to look at us and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, wait a minute. If it's impossible for God to lie, how can he say well done when we have not done well? How can he call us a good and faithful servant if we've been neither good nor faithful? And we certainly haven't been involved in his service. It's impossible for God to lie. Listen, church, there really is. And I I said it. I'm a long way from it. I know it. I know I am not perfect. But there really is this drive inside of me. In fact, there's a lot of times that that, that I, I pray of a morning and I say, God, 
I don't just want to wait until I get over there. But God, when I finish this day and I lay my head on the pillow, I want you to be able to look down at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You made the best of today. You did well today. I want to do that, Brother Larson. I, I desire to somehow be found pleasing in his sight. God doesn't pretend. And that's what a lot of people think, that God's just going to pretend you're okay. That, that, that's, that's not the way it works. There are things God expects out of us. And He expects us to be involved in His kingdom. He expects that out of us. True worship is so much more than just verbal praise. It's doing the things that please the object of your praise. I talked about a man worshiping his wife and I... I kind of got away from that. But let's go back. Let's read 1 Corinthians 7, 33. Because I, I want to use this just to point something out. 1 Corinthians 7 and 33, read. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Now, now, now this is a statement, and, and it, it should apply to both husband and wife. And I guess I could very easily get real sidetracked right now and do a little marriage teaching. Because this is inspired scripture. Every, every word of God is inspired. And this is what the apostle said under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. That he that is married careth for the things of the world. How he may please his wife. This is... This is what should be expected. And not just of the husband pleasing the wife, but the wife pleasing the husband. This ought to be something mutual. When we get married, it's no longer about us. Me. As an individual. You gave that up when you said, I do. Don't get mad at the messenger. I just got the washcloth out. I'm doing a little scrubbing now. When you said I do, you gave up your right to please yourself. And now your job is to please the one to whom you are married. In fact, in fact, according to Paul in the book of Ephesians, the husband is to love his wife the way Christ loves the church. And Christ gave himself, laid down his life for the church. And the husband ought to love his wife just that much. And the wife is to love her husband as the church loves Christ. And she is to obey her husband as the church obeys Christ. Now, I know, I know, in today's society, don't use that word. But it's a biblical word. And I'm going to tell you, as long as I'm your pastor, I'm going to use biblical words. 
We're going to do what we can based on the Bible. That's why we've got the name The Truth Church. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. His word is what the truth is. And so we're going to do things based on his word. And his word still uses that term. God doesn't have a 2023 version of his Bible. Now man may create one, but God didn't. And so we just need to understand, we need to understand this is the way it works, right? And so we serve one another. The the biggest problem, honestly, and I've said it, but I say it again, the biggest problem with society today is this overarching selfishness that consumes the majority of the world. It's absolute selfishness. We are just consumed with us. I must be happy. I must get what I want. And that's why you've got 10,000 flavors of Christianity. Because people are always looking for something that will please themselves. We have to understand that if we truly, truly are the bride of Christ, then it is our obligation to serve Him and please Him. And so our involvement in the kingdom of God should not... It should not be because we feel guilty. It shouldn't be because the preacher made you feel bad today. Preacher put a guilt trip on you, and so, okay, all right, I'll go do something. That's not, that's not what ought to motivate you to be involved. What ought to motivate you to be involved is, I love Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. I want to please Him. Every level of involvement in the church should stem from your desire to please God. That is worship. That's worship. Look, there's a lot of reasons why people get involved, whether it's the church or whatever. There's a lot of reasons why people do it. Number one, some people do it out of a sense of guilt. Should not be the reason. Other people do it because they want to be seen. They're looking for the applause of men. They want the recognition. It's it's the truth. It's it's just, okay, look, the older you get, the less filters you have, all right? Just warning you. Um, I've got a good friend. His dad is in his 90s. And he told me, he said, I'm telling you, he said for several years he hadn't had much filter. But right now there is no such thing as a filter. He just says anything that crosses his mind. Uh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I still still have a few filters in place, but I'm getting there. Um, 
Brother, I think it was, I think Bishop Johnson, if I'm quoting him right, he, he made a statement. It was something to the effect of, of um, when I turn 60, I'm going to say some things. And then he said, when I turn 70, I'm going to tell some things. <laughs> well, I've crossed the 60 line. I hadn't made it to 70 yet, but I guess I've reached that place where I can say some things. But this is a fact. We should not want... All right, look. You want to lead the service. You want to be a song leader. You want to be a praise singer. You want to be a musician. You want whatever. Great. Wonderful. I'm glad you want that. But, but ask yourself, why do I want it? Do I want it because... All right, we've just had this deep lesson and the preacher's made me feel really guilty because I'm doing nothing. Or... Do we want it because, well, I really would like for people to know how well I can sing. In fact, when we sing a congregational hymn, are you doing it so everybody around you can hear how well you sing? Or are you doing it because you love God and you want Him to hear you sing? Good or bad, I just want Him to hear me sing. I want him to know I love him enough to sing to him. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Everything we do in the kingdom of God should be the result of a desire to worship him. It should be out of worship. I want to serve God. I want to serve God. I... I don't have time to go. I haven't made it very far today. Lord Jesus, help me. Um, but this is typical. We'll, we'll go on, Lord willing, next Sunday. We'll pick up with some more. Um, I want to take you back to the early church and show you their example and show you what, how they did things. Because that's how we really ought to pattern our lives. I've said it many times, but the pattern of the church today should not be the mega church or the, the, the TV preacher or, you know, that's not what we ought to pattern after. What we ought to do is to get this book down and pattern ourselves after that book. I picked it up and gave God a wave offering. Hallelujah. We ought to pattern ourselves after what's written in the book. I'm telling you that early church that started in the book of Acts, God is giving us the model that we ought to pattern ourselves after. That's the model. That's the goal. That's what we strive for. We want to be like them. Praise God. At least that's what we ought to want. But I think, I think really we ought to want to go more than that. Because I don't, think, I don't think that the early church was the pinnacle of God's kingdom. I don't. Anything God ever created has always grown. When God creates it, it matures. 
that's just the way it is with God and His creation. And when God created the church, He didn't create it in a state of absolute perfection. And it just goes downhill from there. I'm telling you, I believe that the church of the last day should be everything the church of the first day was. And more. Well, hallelujah. That's setting the bar pretty high, isn't it? But I think that's what we ought to strive for. I think we ought to have a desire in us that God, I want to I not only do what the early church did, I want to go beyond that. But can I tell you this, church, before we start praying that prayer, we better understand what it took to get the early church to where they were. They didn't get that way in comfort. They didn't get that way because everything was perfect for them. In fact, the scripture makes it very clear that what caused the church to multiply and grow was persecution. Tribulation. Trouble. They were stuck in the city of Jerusalem and that was never the will of God. Jesus told them, you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And they were doing none of that until persecution hit. And when persecution hit, guess what? They started doing the will of God. They started spreading out. They went to Samaria. They went to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, that's what the Lord wanted them to do all along. But it took persecution to get them there. Do we really want to become what the early church was? Or are we happy to be as comfortable as we are? Look, I don't long for persecution. I don't want persecution. I don't think anybody in their right mind would. But I'm going to tell you, I have reached a place that I don't mind praying, God, whatever it takes, make us what you want us to be. Fashion us into what you would have us to be, whatever that cost looks like. Don't let us just sing louder and override the voices of a lost and dying world. Don't let us get so comfortable in our praise that we fail to worship. Don't let us get so comfortable in just coming together and being a community that we lose sight of the real community that we ought to be reaching. Come on, does anybody feel what I'm talking about right now? God, don't let us get to the place that all we want to do is just come to church, have another service, feel good about ourselves and go on our merry way and forget about it till next week. Oh, God, help us to get beyond that. Help us to get away from that. Somehow let something happen inside of us that draws us, that creates in us the image of God once again. Make us what you want us to be. God, let us somehow get stirred up in our spirit and become everything you've called us to be. Hallelujah. 
Let's everybody stand this morning. Let's stand. Let's talk to the Lord. Come on, can we? Can we really talk to Him right now? Jesus, help us. These altars are open. The altar's not just for sinners. The biblical altars were actually for the saints. Biblical altars were for those who were really serving God and worshiping God. That's what these altars are for. Sir.